there, there are two featured announcements, both of which are also in your bulletin. Uh, the first is, and we've been telling you this for weeks, uh, it's finally here. Uh, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work is going to be hosting a forum this Thursday evening called Redemption Through Innovation. Again, this Thursday, January 12th, it's going to be in a very lovely venue. Uh, there's going to be a $5,000 grant that is awarded uh, at, that, um, at that event for somebody with an entrepreneurial spirit who desires uh, to promote innovation. And the keynote speaker, uh, this is what I'm really excited about, is my friend Greg Thompson. Greg is uh, director of a, a group out of Charlottesville, Virginia called New City Commons, used to be senior pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. And Greg is swiftly emerging as a foremost leader and thinker in the faith and work space. So if you are anyone, depending on what you're really, it doesn't depend, or it doesn't matter what your field is. If you are anyone interested in uh, how to better integrate your faith with your work, your vocation, uh, you're not going to want to miss what Greg has to share. Uh, we're also going to have Nashville Sheriff Darren Hall, uh, genome expert and also one of CPC's elders, Josh Denny, who does his work out of Vanderbilt, uh, entrepreneur and CEO Brad Smith, and one more local Nashville person, nonprofit executive Dr. Fallon Wilson. So all the details are there in your bulletin. Uh, really want to encourage you to sign up today. Uh, Sign-ups are available out at the welcome desk after the service. And uh, the second announcement this week is uh, that I want to invite the whole CPC family to uh, what we're calling a unity service. It's a joint service uh, next Sunday at 4 p.m. It'll be in the afternoon at 4 p.m., a joint service with the New Livingstone Church congregation. It's a predominantly African-American church pastored by our dear friend Ronnie Mitchell. Ronnie has spoken uh, here uh, at least once before uh, with, with, with our Q Commons event. Uh, we, we got, we've gotten to know Ronnie as well as many other leaders in the African-American community here in Nashville through uh, uh, CPC member Martin Fidel, who, who leads Jobs for Life uh, here locally. Uh, and uh, this is going to be a combined service. Our musicians are going to join in with theirs, but they're going to lead it. Ronnie's going to preach, and uh, it'll be a great sort of setup and, and preparation for uh, a march on Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Monday, which, which is the day after next Sunday. Uh, there's an event. It's actually a 5K sponsored by Barefoot Republic. Many of you are f- familiar with Barefoot Republic. We'll give you more information on that. All the details are there in your bulletin, uh, as I've already said. So uh, all those things being said, I'd like to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Beatitudes, which is a subsection of our longer series that we're going through on the Sermon on the Mount. Today we are at Beatitude number six, blessed are the pure in heart. And so today's scripture reading, very short one, is Matthew chapter five, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So one of the most famous scenes in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is found in the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Uh, and it's when the young girl Susan uh, is in conversation with Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver is a talking beaver. He's a native of Narnia, and he's helping Susan to understand how Narnia 
works. And part of her education is to tell her about Aslan, who's the king of Narnia. And fans of the Narnia Chronicles know that Aslan is also the figure in the Chronicles of Narnia that represents Jesus. And so Mr. Beaver says to Susan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan says, oh, I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, there's a similar scene in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, where Isaiah encounters the king of the land. He sees a vision of God himself, of Yahweh, in the temple. And it says the train of God's robe is filling the temple with glory, with radiance, with purity. And there are angels as well that are covering their own eyes because looking, to look at God directly for them would be like looking directly at the sun, except it wouldn't just pierce their eyes, it would pierce their entire being in order to do so. And so the angels even, morally perfect creatures, are covering their eyes and crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah says that because of this vision, he starts to call woes upon himself. Woe is me because I'm ruined. I'm wrecked. I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember, this is a prophet who speaks the word of God as his profession, a preacher of the truth. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. As in Aslan's Narnia, Isaiah is asking the question that anybody will begin to ask when they discover God in the totality of his being. And the question is, how is it possible to live in a world of a king who's good, but he's not safe? And we'll see that the answer lies in the sixth beatitude. It's the pure in heart who will see God. So, just a little bit of contextual background. Each gospel writer writes with a specific target audience in mind. For Mark, it's the secular Roman culture. He's, he's, he's writing in language that will be understood and connect with and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the secular Roman world. For Luke, it's the academics and the intellectuals. It's the Greeks. Uh, it's the Vanderbilt and Belmont and Lipscomb professors and such. For John, the audience is everyone. And that's why, typically, if, if, if somebody who's wanting to understand more about Christianity asks a Christian, where do I start? The common answer is, start by reading the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John is written to be accessible to every kind of human being everywhere. And then there's Matthew, who wrote this book and who records the Sermon on the Mount for us, whose specific target audience is the Jews. The Jews are the people who have been steeped all of their lives in the stories, the narratives, the truths within the Old Testament 
Scriptures. And for them, because of their relationship with the Old Testament Scriptures, the idea that any mortal, any human being could see God is crazy. And so our first point, our first heading that is, is that that Jesus here is making a radical claim to the typical Jewish ear. And after we deal with this radical claim, we'll explore two questions. How bad can it really be? And how good can it really get? So, yeah, the radical claim, though, the radical claim that's being made in this beatitude is that it's actually possible for a mere mortal to see God, for, for the finite to behold the infinite, for people with unclean lips to gaze upon an unsafe lion and not be destroyed. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. You know, the burning bush experience where Moses encounters God in the burning bush, and it says that that, that Moses' immediate reaction in, in seeing this vision of God was that he was terrified. And then if you go to Exodus chapter 33, at the invitation of Yahweh, Moses ascends Mount Sinai to have a conversation, to actually have a meeting with God. And he gets a little bit bold with the invitation. And Moses says to God, show me your glory. Let me see your face. And God responds, I can't or it will destroy you because no man can see my face and live to tell about it. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to show you my backside instead of my face. And instead of showing you my glory, my weight, my holiness, instead of showing you my glory, I'm going to show you my goodness. And I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock to protect you from that vision of my back and of my goodness that that, that itself could even destroy you. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock in order to protect you. And so Moses has that experience. He descends from the mountain, and his face is a lot like the moon. It's it's radiating derivative light. You know, the the reason we see the moon so bright at night is because the, 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 the light of the sun is illuminating it. And in the same way, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and his face is illuminated, having met with the living God. And it says that the people of Israel's immediate response, as they saw Moses' lit up face, is that they were afraid. And then Judges chapter 13, we get the account of Manoah, a Jewish man who, along with his wife, uh, get a very brief glimpse of God. It's like a shooting star. It's there and it's gone. And, And even with that little tiny vision, it says that Manoah looks at his wife and he says, we should prepare to die because we've seen the Lord. And as if, you know, this might only be an Old Testament concept of God, we see the same thing happening in the New Testament. When Jesus, after a long day of of fishing and, and catching no fish, Jesus says to Peter and the other disciples, throw your net into the water, and they do so, and and they pull out the largest catch that they've ever seen or experienced in their lives. And Peter's immediate response was to look at Jesus and to say, Lord, I can't bear the sight of you. Go away from me, because I am a sinful man. 
The chasm between who you are, and this is an apostle, just like, you know, Isaiah was a, a prophet of God. We're talking about an apostle here who wrote some of the New Testament, who preached some of the boldest, most beautiful sermons in the history of the world. This is Peter saying, Lord, I can't bear the sight of you because you are so pure and I am so not Old Testament and New, when, when, when we look at the totality of God and who He is and all of His attributes, we're going to discover that the Lamb is also a lion, that He is as fierce as He is tender. And those who are pure in heart, as, as they discover His fierceness, recognize how impure they are standing next to a God whose eyes are too pure, as the Scriptures tell us, to look on evil, and whose presence threatens, disorients, discombobulates, and knocks even the best of people off their center. I meet with a group of, of men a couple of times a month, and several of them are in this room right now. And the last time that we were together, or maybe a couple of times ago, we, we were talking about sort of this, this idea of, of embracing the totality of God, every attribute of His character that the Scriptures reveal, reveal being formed by the Scriptures. And one of, the, one of the guys in the group said, shouldn't we be more terrified of God than we are? And, you know, if you're like me, and you are because you're a human being, this stuff unnerves you, it troubles you, if you're like me. There either has been a time in your life, or maybe now is that time, or maybe there will be a time in your life where your heart will form a resistance movement against this attribute of God. And you might be tempted to say, the reason why I am not a Christian is that I could never accept the idea of a God who is like that. You know, Thomas Nagel, who, um, in my opinion, is a very honest, humble, in some ways, atheist philosopher. And he's honest and humble because of the way that he expresses the truth of why he has chosen atheism. And he says this in an essay that the reason why he is an atheist is that he is afraid of religion. He says this, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that my belief is right, I hope that there is no God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that, and catch this phrase, my guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not that rare. You hear in him echoes of what C.S. Lewis says when he reflects on his former life of, of being an atheist, when he says, that at that time in my life, I was, you know, at Oxford, I was angry at God for not existing. In other words, eternity was in my heart, and I recognized the existence of God, but I did not want Him to exist because of a cosmic authority problem. You know, all human beings, all of us, 
on some level, and for different reasons, have a subterranean resentment about the idea of a God who demands perfection and to whom all must answer and before whom every knee will bow, whether now or later, every knee will bow. You look at Isaiah's experience. Did you catch it? He targets his lips. The vessel of the Scriptures and the truth and the beauty of God, arguably the purest part of Isaiah. And Isaiah says, after seeing a vision of God, I have unclean lips and I am wrecked. These are the purest lips in the world. In the heart of Thomas Nagel is something that's in the heart of all of us. There's this terror about facing the reality that we all know is true, that we are supposed to be perfect. You don't have to believe the Bible to believe that we're supposed to be perfect. Nobody believes in their heart of hearts that to err is human. Nobody believes that. Otherwise, we would never punish or judge anybody for anything. Because the error is human. I mean, this is me on, on the road today, coming back here from preaching at CPC in town this morning. And I'm behind somebody who's driving six miles an hour below the speed limit the whole way on Hillsborough Road, which is a one-lane one road. And I'm finding myself getting really angry and punishing and judging them in my heart and thinking to myself, you are everything that's wrong in the world. You up there in that car. I hope you're not a member of, I hope you're not a member of my church. Because um, I don't want to judge people in our church like I'm judging you right now. But in my heart, I'm thinking, you are going to stop me from hearing holy, holy, holy and singing it with our people. You know, I'm, I'm going through, that's, that's really why I wanted to be back. I wanted to, I wanted to hear that magnificent, you know, song during the offertory, and I wanted to be here to sing holy, 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 and they stopped me from doing that by driving six miles under the speed limit, which made us hit four red lights that could have been yellow if we were going a little bit faster. <laughs> if I thought that terror is human, why would I judge and punish this person in my heart? Why would we judge or punish anyone if we really believe that? Why would we ever get defensive about any kind of criticism ever given to us if we really believed that we weren't supposed to be perfect, that we weren't made to be flawless, impeccable, pure in heart. To err is not human, and we know it. And to be pure in heart, then, is, is to recognize that even on our best days, like Isaiah, even on our best days, we're up a creek. Even on our best days, we're never pure enough. Because if we saw God's face without any outside protection to cover us, without the cleft of, of the rock in which to hide, if we saw God's face, we would drop dead. Do we approach Him this way? Or have we gotten to this point where, where, where our, our entry into the presence of God is just so cavalier? And so off the mark 
in terms of the totality of who he is, of who we're dealing with. He is as fierce as he is tender. How bad can it be? So the Puritans help us. There's this document, it's a series of questions and answers called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And what the Puritans tell us in this document about sin is this. Sin is not merely what we do, it's who we are. It's a condition into which we have been born. The the theologians for centuries have called it original sin. And so here are questions 17, 18, and 19 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 17, what happened to man in the fall? Answer, man fell into a condition of sin and misery. Question 18, what is sinful about man's fallen condition? First, in what is commonly called original sin, there is the guilt of Adam's first sin with its lack of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature. Second are all of the specific acts of disobedience that come from original sin. Question 19, what is the misery of man's fallen condition? By their fall, all mankind lost fellowship with God and brought his anger and curse on themselves. They are therefore subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And if the Puritans don't do it for us, if if maybe we look at the Puritans as those who are, you know, from yesterday, culturally regressive, you know, pre-enlightenment mindset, and so on, then let's go with Herman Melville. Let's go with a direct excerpt out of Moby Dick, which is lauded by many people in literature as the best novel of all time. Says Melville, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Genesis 6-5 puts it this way, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was not pure, but only evil all the time. Romans chapter 3, if we think, well, that's just Old Testament. My God's the God of the New Testament. Well, here is what the New Testament says. Romans chapter 3, there is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one righteous. We have all together become corrupt. Happy New Year. (laughs) Can you stay with me just for a few minutes? I promise you in just a a couple of minutes, there's a relief valve, release valve that's coming. But let's all start by admitting this. Let's all start by admitting how offensive it is to be told by anybody that we are offensive. You know, when confronted with this kind of teaching, there really are two kinds of of responses. Those who are experiencing this condition of being pure in heart are something like the late Jack Miller, who when criticized, even unfairly, would typically respond Thank you for not going as far as you could with that, because truth be told, you don't know the half of it. 
Or we can respond as the Pharisee would. How dare you? How dare you? You know, Chuck Colson was giving a, a talk. It was actually a teaching that he was giving to a group of businessmen. It was, it was all men at, the, at this time, and uh, you know, at this particular meeting. And the subject of his talk was original sin, and he was teaching the same kinds of things that, that the Puritans and Melville and Genesis and Paul and Romans taught about the condition of the human heart unaided by God. And right in the middle of his talk about original sin, one of the businessmen stood up right in the middle and interrupted him and said, that's offensive. And instead of backing down, Colson doubled down because he recognized what was at stake. And he said, sir, I would submit to you that the, the most virtuous man in this room, whoever that man might be, on his most virtuous day, in his most virtuous moment of that day, is infinitely more like Adolf Hitler than he is like Jesus Christ. The problem is that we've got our metrics wrong. We're measuring ourselves against other people rather than measuring ourselves against the benchmark of perfection. Oh, that can't be true. It, it most certainly is true. You can't tell me I'm like Hitler. I've never murdered a single person. Oh, yes, you have. If you are about the teachings of Jesus, here's a warning. You might want to take this Sunday off or especially plan to be here when we talk about what murder is. Because Jesus later on in this very sermon says, if I have so much as hated one person in my heart, I have become a murderer by nature. If I have so much as lusted for somebody in my heart, sexually, I have become an adulterer. If I have so much offered a prayer or read the Bible for the wrong reason, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus presses in and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What did the righteousness of the Pharisees look like? Well, for one, the law of God says give 10% minimum of your income back to the Lord. First fruits. The Pharisees, when you added up their practices, it added up to something closer to 20% because they not only gave a 10% tithe on their income, they also tithed on their expenses. They tithed on money that went out, on the, on the cash flow out as well as the cash flow in. Or, you know, the law of God said the people of God, the people of Israel are to fast once per year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once per year. And, and we see in Luke chapter 18 that, that many of the Pharisees fasted twice a week. That's 154 times what the requirement was. Unless your righteousness exceeds that, Jesus says, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. There is no hyperbole here, by the way. Jesus meant every word that he said in precisely the way that he said it. Our best will never be enough. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Nobody... Nobody 
who is pure in heart fails to believe what I just said. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, said this, Who are the pure in heart? It's those who mourn about the impurity of their hearts. He would also say in the same commentary, the key to keeping the Sermon on the Mount is to recognize that you'll never be able to keep it. This sermon is given to drive you to Jesus. That's what it's given for. It's not a New Year's resolution list. It's, it's not a moral reformation project for you to undertake. This is to drive you to your knees in recognition that apart from God's outside intervention, you're going to drop dead. There are three potential responses to this teaching. One is contempt for God, contempt for the Bible, contempt for preachers perhaps. You know, oh, the nerve, how dare you. You know, cosmic authority problem. Second potential response is a different kind of contempt, and that's self-contempt. You know, it's like Isaiah in the temple. I'm ruined. I'm wrecked. Despair. Woe is me. Or the Apostle Paul, you know, wretched man that I am, as he encounters his own covetousness, wretched man that I am, who will separate me from this body of death? The third response is the response of the pure in heart. Joy. What did he say? Joy. Here's the release valve. How good can it get? Here's how. If you have $20 billion in your possession and somebody announces to you that you're going to inherit $1 billion, your response will be, that's nice. Anybody want to go to dinner? You know, but, but if you are bankrupt, if you have nothing to your name and it's announced to you that you are now the heir of a billion dollars, you're doing backflips. You're the happiest person in the world. The way you see everything is suddenly transformed. You know, I was reading this article last week called Sharing Heaven with Serial Killers. And it's an article about a pastor named Roy Ratcliffe from the 90s, and he's the pastor that would visit the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer in prison on a regular basis. And in an interview in 1994 with Stone Phillips, Roy Ratcliffe, the pastor, revealed to the public that Jeffrey Dahmer, in a private moment with the pastor, had accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. This is a man who was convicted for 15 counts of murder and all sorts of atrocious, inhumane acts. And the writer of this essay that I read went on to say, who wants to see Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven? Who would want to have a seat next to Jeffrey Dahmer at the wedding feast of the Lamb, really? And whether or not Dahmer's conversion is authentic, and it's not for us to judge, that's, that's only in the hands of God to judge, we have no choice but to share the wedding feast of the Lamb with some really, really, really bad, bad, bad people. King Manasseh in the Old Testament was enmeshed in the occult before he came alive to the gospel. Rahab, an active prostitute. Mary Magdalene as well. David was a sexual predator and a murderer. Saul of Tarsus was a religious extremist and a terrorist. This was the condition of these men and women before they were given purity of heart from the outside. Now, those of us who are impure in heart are going to be appalled by these narratives. 
But those of us who are pure in heart will breathe an exhale of relief because if there's hope for them, there's hope for us. There's hope for me. You know, the answer to Isaiah's despair, interestingly, was God sent an angel who kissed him on the lips with a coal. And he says, do not fear. The most repeated command in the Bible, do not fear because of your guilt and your shame and the chasm that exists between you and the purity of God. Do not fear because this coal has touched your lips, because God has kissed your lips. Your guilt is removed. Your sin is atoned for. How is it atoned for? By the sacrifice that would come of another who would, who would in the future live the life that you should have, should have lived but didn't and never could, and who died the death uh, to, to pay the penalty for every wrong in you and about you. You've been kissed, and now you're forgiven, and you're atoned for. God is not safe, but you are. Because the moment you begin to fear God is the very moment you'll never again have to be afraid of Him. Because you're hidden in Jesus. Jesus is the God for the morally bankrupt. So when Japanese culture, people in Japanese culture receive a gift, it's very common for the response not to be thank you, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And the subtext beneath the I'm sorry is this. I know I don't deserve this, and I know that there's nothing that I can do to pay you back for this. This table is our opportunity to approach and to receive and to say, I'm sorry. Because I know I don't deserve this, and there's nothing that I can do to repay you for this. And at that moment, the king will kiss you. He will touch your lips with the bread and with the cup to remind you that your guilt in Christ is removed and your sin is atoned for. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us near to God. Thank you, Lord, that though you are not safe, you are good. Thank you, Lord, that where sin abounds in us, grace abounds all the more in you. We're sorry. Thank you. Amen.